Today's scripture reading is from Colossians 3, verses 5 through 11. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, two, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This is the living word of God for us today. Well, good morning, fellowship. How's everyone doing today? All right. Pardon me as I get settled here. All right, so some of you in the room, let's just call it what it is. Some of you in the room are saying, who the heck is this guy? Let me introduce myself. Uh, My name is Mike. I'm not one of your teaching pastors uh, here at Fellowship. Uh, I'm an elder here at the church. And uh, from time to time, kind of a few times a year, we let the starters sit on the bench, take a little water, and they invite other people to put on the jersey and get some court time. And so that's me this week. I'm grateful to be with you. Uh, Last week, I was up at Brentwood, and I think Rob was facilitating a leadership retreat at that time. So he had the pulpit off last Sunday, and Lloyd gets a break today, which is very well earned and very deserved. So I'm grateful to be with you this morning. I'm going to pray to start our time together, because quite frankly, our passage today is a doozy. Join me. Lord, I'm grateful for all the blessings uh, that you have showered so lavishly upon us. And Lord, your word tells us uh, that when two or more are gathered, you are there among them. Lord, I look out at this room at our Franklin campus and I see people who are followers of you. And Lord, I trust that your word will go out this morning and that it will not return void. Lord, your word is in our Bibles and is, is spoken this morning so that it can change us, so that it can challenge us, so that we can be molded and shaped by it. And Lord, I pray that would be true this morning. Lord, I seek your glory today. I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict lives as we explore the truth as put forth in the book of Colossians. Would you meet us here in this time and would you meet us in a meaningful way? In your name, amen. So as we transition to the book of Colossians, uh, you can go ahead and open up your Bible or your little handy dandy booklet. I'm not sure if you guys still have these or if you're, some of you have probably lost them. One of my daughters has already lost hers. Um, but I've loved this. You can kind of take notes in the margins. There's things you can do to kind of actively circle and underline and make notes. I'm a note taker. I'm a highlighter. So this has been fantastic for me as we've gone through this book. Um, first thing I want to say is Colossians. Like all of Paul's writings, I'm not sure if you've ever seen this as a student of the scripture, but all of Paul's letters, he has a pattern. He always starts by laying a theological foundation and then he turns to application. It's sort of like Paul saying, I'm going to fill your mind with right thinking, and then we're going to get practical. 
And just so you know, in the book of Colossians, when we turn to chapter three is where Paul pivots and he starts going from uh, theory and theology to application. He's sort of saying, okay, guys, let's apply this now. And what you found in chapters one and chapters two is that we find incredible teaching about Jesus, who he is, what he's done, and what that means for us. Right? Some of you have probably started memorizing the Colossians Creed. That's a great example of the theological base that Paul is trying to build for us in this book. Who is Jesus? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Paul is helping us to think properly about Jesus. One of the things I wanna do this morning before we get into Colossians chapter three, I wanna have you turn backwards one chapter just so I can give you another example of some of the rich theology that Paul is trying to drive into our minds before we start getting practical. Jump back to Colossians two with me and we're gonna look at Colossians two verses 13 and 14. And Paul says this, he says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. If you're a circler or an underliner, circle who were dead, right? You who were dead, that's us. And then circle God made alive, right? You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, referring to Jesus, having forgiven us our trespasses. How do you do that? Verse 14, by canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Interesting word choice. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. My friends, all of us have a rap sheet. There's a list of offenses of the things that we have done wrong, right? The word for that is sin, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death. Our rap sheet, that which we have done to offend God, our sins, they've separated us from a holy God, right? And we were dead because of that, Colossians says in chapter two. But it also says that God made us alive. How did he do that? He canceled the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, right? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. There was no hope from us. Our sins separated us from God. But when we accepted Jesus as Lord, when he came to us, when we, when we found our salvation in Jesus, what happened is our sins were nailed to the cross of Christ. Jesus took our sins upon himself. He gives to us his perfection and our, and our debts have now been canceled. I find one of the things that's helpful for me as I, as I go through my Bible uh, and I find certain verses, it's helpful for me as a student of the scripture to actually understand theological definitions, to understand some theological terms because as we come across certain verses, it's helpful to uh, lend a hand for us to understand these. And I wanna give you a couple of theological definitions this morning before we get rolling into Colossians. If you can find space in your booklet, that's the perfect place for it. Or if you've got a Bible that's got some nice big margins, go ahead and write it there. You don't offend God when you write in your Bibles. But I want to give you a definition of the theological term justification. We're going to put this on the screen. Justification is the legal act whereby God on the merits of Christ declares the sinner sinless and treats him as such. Justification is the legal act whereby God on the merits of Christ declares the sinner sinless and treats him as such. We have been acquitted 
of our rap sheet. And when Paul talks about uh, the debt that stood against us with its legal demands, I thought of the term justification because that also is a legal term, all right? Now, as we read in the scriptures, God took our sins upon him, right? And then what happened is that he assumed our sin, we received his righteousness so that when God looks at you and God looks at me, he sees his holy son. He sees us as perfect and forgiven, Now, as we look at a verse that we encountered last week in Colossians, if you can fast forward in your book to Colossians 3, chapter 3, I want to highlight another verse for you. Uh, Lloyd went over this last week. Colossians 3, 3 says this. It says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. We have died and our life is hidden with Christ. So when we were reborn, we also went through a kind of death. And this is similar to other verses that Paul gives us in the New Testament letters. You don't have to turn to here in your Bible, but I'll give you chapter and verse and read it to you. Just write down 2 Corinthians 5.17. 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says this. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. One more. Write down Galatians 2.20. Galatians 2.20, some of you may have this memorized. It says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So when we accepted Christ, there was a new life that began. Our spirit was reborn. There's such a change in our spirits that we're literally considered a new creation, right? We are a completely new life inside, right? But we also went through a kind of a death. We need to understand that there's a part of us also that died in that moment. And as we get into uh, Paul's text today in Colossians chapter three, we're going to find that this death is uh, sort of a renewal that happens within us, right? There's a, there's a renewal of our conduct that follows after our spirits receive Christ. And this second conversion, this second renewal, this is something that requires our participation, And I want to give you one more theological term and then we're going to get into the meat of Colossians. Go back to where you're writing down your last definition. I want you to write one more down and we're going to write down the term sanctification. It's a church word you've probably heard many times before. What is sanctification? It is the continual process by which the Holy Spirit is making me more like Christ. This requires my cooperation. Write it down. My friends, when I was at Bible school in Europe, our director of the school made us memorize about a dozen theological terms and they were pounded into my head. And when I come across certain verses in the scripture, I remember these and it helps me to understand my Bible better. Sanctification, the continual process, it's ongoing. It doesn't end. By which the Holy Spirit from within is making me more like Christ. But underline the second sentence. This requires my cooperation. Now, some people, when they accept Jesus as Lord, right, they pray the sinner's prayer, they ask Jesus to forgive them of their sins, and they install Jesus into their life as Lord and as Savior, they feel like God kind of says, okay, good doing business with you, thanks for praying the sinner's prayer, see you in heaven. And they think that's it. But that's not it. After we pray the sinner's prayer and we're, si- and we're saved, we're forgiven of our sins and our offenses, the Holy Spirit resides within us, and it tries to remake us now from within, We are to be remade into the image of God's son. And when that happens, God sends us back into the world to live in a renewed way. And that's where Paul's gonna go in Colossians 3. We're gonna ask the question today, what does it mean to become more like Jesus? You're gonna find in our text today that there's two parts to it. There's a putting off 
that has to occur. There's a shedding of the old self and there's a putting on. There's a putting on of the new self. And as we look at the text today, what I want you to know is that verse one through verse 17, we're doing this over three weeks, but it's one continuous thought, right? As Paul is gonna get into the uh, nitty gritty about what is the moral transformation of the believer. That's all of verses one through 17, the putting off and the putting on. I've got verses five through 11 today, which are mostly focused on the putting off, okay? Let's get into this. Paul says, starting in verse five, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, passion, evil desire. Oh, sorry, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, there's a couple of different lists, even within our text today. Paul gave us two separate lists of five sins in our, in our uh, passage of scripture today. Um, Paul gives numerous lists of verses all throughout his writings. There's a number of them. Uh, but what you'll find when you look at any of them is that they're not supposed to be considered exhaustive or complete, right? Paul's not saying this is the entire corpus of sin. This is all of them. That's not what he's going at. But he's highlighting a, several, uh, a list of several sins at a time. And just by way of explanation, I've got 35 minutes up here. That's the time allotment I've got to be able to get into this. So we're not gonna wrestle with every single sin on these two lists today. I'm gonna try to highlight the ones that I thought were most meaningful, at least the ones that I thought would be most relevant for our time together today. Paul starts with sexual immorality and impurity. Just so you know, the Greek word for sexual immorality, it's pornea, pornea. What does that word sound like? Pornea is uh, sexual immorality and it is the word used to define any sexual act outside of the boundaries of marriage between a man and a woman. Let me read that again so there's no confusion. Sexual immorality is any sexual act outside of the boundaries of a marriage between a man and a woman. Now, is sex a bad thing? No way. Sex was designed by God. It was his idea. It was his gift to us. And if I may say, it's a great thing. My wife at the Brentwood campus last week, as I said this, I could see her kind of sinking in her seat a little bit. And she's like, oh man, don't make eye contact. Don't make eye contact, right? Sex is an unbelievable gift from God. Thank you. But scriptures will tell us very plainly that, out, that sex outside the guardrails of what it was intended for can do incredible harm and incredible damage to our own souls and to the souls of those around us. God put some parameters around sex, some guardrails, not to inhibit our joy, but to allow us to walk in the fullness of it. Now, Paul's gonna move from sexual immorality, which is implying a physical encounter, to impurity, referring to impure thoughts and intentions of the mind. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks to impurity this way. He says, if a man looks upon a woman lustfully, he has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Guys, sexual behavior, it begins with sexual thoughts. Therefore, the battle against all sin, but especially sexual sin, it begins in the mind. And Paul's gonna go from there to passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. And you might say, what does it mean to covet? Right? This is the, the, the 10th commandment listed in the 10 commandments. What does it mean to covet? 
Well, guys, covetousness is when the lens through which you look at the world is focused not on what you have been given and how you have been blessed, but it's when you're looking at the world through the lens of what you haven't been given and the things that you don't, that you haven't received, right? It's when you're, when you're looking at the world as through a glass half empty perspective. All of us should be experiencing joy and gratitude from what we have been given by God. For Pete's sakes, this is Williamson County, okay? Guys, we live in a world of incredible abundance. We have all been blessed. We went through a, a cold spell about a week ago. Temperatures dropped and it was cold outside. I think most of you slept indoors. When you got in your car this morning and turned the key to start it, I think your car started today. Some of you, if not most of you, when you got going this morning, you were able to have a cup of coffee and you should have said, thank you, Jesus, for coffee. And when you went to your closet to get dressed this morning, you had options. My friends, we have been blessed abundantly. And yet in our weaker moments, we allow our thoughts sometimes to go down a bad road. We start saying things like, I don't have that. She has that. Why did God give that to him and not to me? And we start to view the world through a lens of what we haven't been given and how God has not blessed us rather than being grateful for how he has provided for us. Because I think covetousness is, is last on this initial list of five sins because I think at its core, it's actually the root of all sin. Track with me for a moment on this. Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. And God says, all of this I give to you. It's yours for your enjoyment. But there's one tree you can't touch. Just one. All of this is yours. Hands off this one tree. You ever ask yourself, why did Eve take the fruit? She had it all. She had everything. Why did Eve take the fruit? Guys, she was convinced that somehow God was holding out on her. Why did Lucifer rebel? against God. I think this is captured in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel it's either 27 or 28 in your Bible. Why did Lucifer rebel against God? Here is this archangel, a guardian cherub. The Bible describes him as beautiful, powerful, strong, leader of many angels, had a position of authority in heaven. Why did he rebel against God? Because he wanted more. He felt entitled to more. Guys, covetousness is a risk for all of us. It's the insatiable desire to have more and sometimes to have more of that which has been forbidden. And Paul is saying, guys, this is spiritual cancer. Put it away. Now, as I'm going through this first list of five sins, one of the things that struck me was, I'm like, okay, how does America today feel about this first list of five sins? Would America say, oh yeah, those are bad. Oh yeah, hands off that, no good. No, guys, you need to recognize, and I hope you agree with me, America is actually leaning into these sins as being good and right. As a culture, America looks at these sins and they're not calling them sins, right? In America today, let's just talk about this. Same-sex attraction, it's not only tolerated in our culture today, it's actually considered progressive. Sexual activity between consenting partners, regardless of age, Regardless of gender, regardless of marital status, it's championed. It's considered normative and right. Of course you're supposed to have sex. Whenever you want, however you want, with whom, whoever you want. And as far as covetousness goes, guys, you need to realize that marketing departments all over the world 
have one aim in mind. They spend billions and billions of dollars with one goal, to make you covet their product, to make you feel like you couldn't possibly be happy without the product that they sell. That's their goal. Now you need to realize that as a culture, people, our culture, our civilization is leaning towards these sins. And as believers, Paul's trying to say, hey guys, we need to lean this way. We need to be very intentional as believers to recognize up front that the cultural flow is going this way. Our culture wants us to lean this way. And if we're not being proactive, if we're not being intentional as believers, we're just gonna drift with the culture this way. Paul is telling us to do a self-examination, take a look and realize, hey, no, this is right conduct for the believer. We are to live countercultural. We're to live not with the cultural flow, but we are to swim upstream against the current. Translation, if you're living for Christ, you're gonna be considered a little weird. You're not gonna be normal if we're living for Christ, at least in the eyes of the world. And that's why Paul is gonna use really extreme language in this text to define what our response is supposed to be towards these things. Take a look at the word choice in verse five. Does Paul say, hey, sexual immorality, bad idea? Or does he say, evil desires, yeah, don't recommend it. No, Paul says, put to death these things. He's saying we need to be radical about our sin. And the question becomes, what does that mean in practice? What does it mean to be radical about our sin? Well, let me give you a few thoughts on this. Number one, it means don't make excuses for your sin. Don't get sentimental about your sin. Don't play the victim of your sin. And for goodness sake, do not welcome it into your home and tolerate it as though it were something harmless because you feel you've got it under control. You guys, that's not how sin works. Listen, if you bring home a baby tiger into your home and you name it Fluffy, don't be surprised if you wake up one morning and Fluffy is eating you alive. Because that's how sin works. And Fluffy knows her job. I read a story, guys, as I was getting ready to uh, prepare for the sermon. I read a story about a European watch company that hired a beautiful model to pose with a lion for one of their photo shoots. What do you think happened? The lion attacked her during the photo spread while they had the cameras out. And everybody on site, the guys, the gaffers holding the microphones, the people that were doing the, the makeup and so forth, everybody, everybody reacted not only in horror, but strangely in shock and disbelief. Like it was this crazy thing that was happening. Who could have seen this? Come on. It's not crazy at all. The lion was simply following its nature. It was observing its spot on the food chain. There's nothing shocking about that at all. And guys, we have to realize that sin, like the lion, its desire is to destroy us. We can't treat it like a house pet. Many people have discovered, perhaps some people in this room have discovered, that if you think that you can domesticate sin, you think you can kind of have it under control, that it can overwhelm you at any time without notice and take away nearly all that you hold to be dear. You guys, you can't domesticate your sin. You can't kind of keep it over here, contain, private. I got this. It's okay. I'll take care of this. That's not how it works. Does anyone have a story of a loved one 
of a family member, of a coworker, someone that's within your sphere of influence that thought they could domesticate their sin. They thought they had it under control. And all of a sudden, it sprung up in a moment and cost them nearly everything. Guys, I have a friend who lost his marriage because of a sin that was hidden for many, many years. He lost 100% of his finances because of this sin that was hidden for many, many years. And his life has been absolutely decimated. Why? Because a sin crept into his life when he was younger and he tolerated it. He didn't vanquish it while it was young. He allowed it to grow and to take root and to become strong in his life. And it took him down. Guys, this is why our grace-driven effort to eliminate sin has to be radical. It needs to be an assault on the part of the believer. Sin is like a, a lion, my friends, and 1 Peter 5.8 tells us that the lion is looking for someone to devour. Now, as we think about Paul's word choice in Colossians 3, when he says, put it to death, that seems pretty extreme, doesn't it? But it actually squares with other language in the Bible when it speaks about how we are to deal with sin. In Romans 6, Paul says this. Romans 6, 11, Paul says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Genesis 4, 7 says, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Note the active language. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Romans, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. It will want to reign. It will try to reign. It will try to have control. It's your job to fight against it. And Paul says in Colossians 3, it is our job to put it to death. Guys, we've got a role in this process. We're not passive observers of the process of becoming more like Christ. We've got a part to play. Now, some of you might be saying, well, why do I even need to put my sins to death? Right, Mike, your first five minutes up there, you're saying how our sins have been forgiven, how Christ has nailed them to the cross, right? My sins are counted against me no more. Why do I gotta bother with putting my sin to death if I've already been forgiven? That might be going through your mind. Let me address that objection three different ways if I could. Number one, look at your text for today. Look at verse six. Paul says, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Why do we put our sin to death? Number one, guys, God still hates sin. And when God returns in the second coming, when God comes again to judge the earth, he is doing so to vanquish all sin and pour out his wrath on all sin. That is reason number one. What's the second reason, second reason we're to put our sin to death? Simply this, the world's watching. The world is watching. I don't know what your story is in terms of how you came to faith, but let me tell you a little bit about mine. I was playing basketball at the University of Calgary up in Western Canada, and I met a guy on the basketball court. His name was Rod Sawatsky. There was something different about this guy. I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but even the way he played basketball was different, right? When I scored on him, he'd give me a high five. Who does that? When he played, he played hard. He always called fouls on himself when there was a foul. On the court, there was just something a little unusual about this guy. But I got to watch his life off the basketball court as well. And I, could, I couldn't quite nail it down. I couldn't put my finger on it. There was something different about how this guy lived. And it made me ask the question, what is it? Why is this guy different than everyone else that I know? I would come to find out that it was Christ in him. 
that made him different. My friends, in this Awaken movement that we're a part of as a church, as we're praying for eight people, right, to, that don't know Christ at this time, we're praying for God to make himself known to these people. These eight people on your list, they're looking at you. And are they asking, what makes them different? What do, what's, what's different about their lives? Do they see Christ in you? My friends, I heard it once said that changed lives change lives. That was certainly true in my case because I saw a life that was unmistakably changed and it made me want to understand that better. So the second reason, guys, why do we put our sin to death? Because the world is watching. And the third reason is this. It's probably the most important reason. Why do we put our sins to death? Because it's no longer who you are. It is no longer who you are. Paul is compelling us in Colossians 3 to become who we already are. Guys, sin used to define you. It used to absolutely uh, be a picture of who you were. In fact, Paul says in verse seven in today's text, he says, in these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Guys, we used to be bound to sin. We used to be trapped in its grip without any hope, without any way out. We used to be bound to observe sin's demands. We didn't have the ability to resist sin before Christ. But when the Holy Spirit came into us, he literally resides within you. Guys, that freed us from the bondage of sin. We are no longer obligated to observe its demands. We have been freed from sin. Now, I know as I say that this morning in this church, some of you don't feel free. Some of you feel stuck. Some of you feel like you're trapped or you're still, for whatever reason, wrestling with a particular sin or sins in your life, bound to your old ways. Some of you might feel like, man, how do I get out of the grasp or out of the grip of this particular sin? Because I don't feel free today, even though Mike's saying I am. Well, if you would, please in your mind envision that sin, if there is one in your life that you feel has a hold on you. And as you think about that sin, I want to read a story to you uh, of a book that I encountered when I was in seminary. I took a semester class on the life and writings of C.S. Lewis when I was in seminary. And when I read this man's writings, my imagination was captivated. I felt like I could understand theological concepts better because of the way that C.S. Lewis addressed certain topics. The clarity of his thought, the precision of his pen, just the way that he viewed different things within theology, I'm telling you, I fell in love with God more because of my time with C.S. Lewis. And there's a book that he wrote called The Great Divorce. And the book is a little bit unusual. It's a fictional account of people who are separated from God. And in The Great Divorce, uh, people who are separated from God, believe it or not, they get on a bus and they're taken to this grassy plain that's just on the outskirts of heaven. Heaven in the great divorce is depicted as this mountain range that's not far off in the distance, right? So this bus delivering people separated from God to this plain, and what happens when they get there is that angels come down from heaven, and they meet these people, and they try to talk these people into throwing off that which is separating them from God. I want to read you the encounter with my friend, Matt Brock. We're going to read you the encounter of an angel who's meeting with a man who is challenged by the lizard of lust. Okay. 
I saw coming towards us a ghost who carried something on his shoulder. Like all ghosts, like all the ghosts, he was unsubstantial, but they differed from one another as smokes differ. Some had been whitish, but this one was dark and oily. What sat on his shoulder was a little red lizard, and it was twitching its tail like a whip and whispering things in his ear. As we caught sight of him, he turned his head to the reptile with a snarl of impatience. Shut up, I tell you. It wagged its tail and continued to whisper to him. He ceased snarling and presently began to smile. And then he turned and started to limp westward away from the mountains. Off so soon, said a voice. The speaker was more or less human in shape, but larger than a man. And so bright that I could hardly look at him. His presence smote on my eyes and on my body too, for there was a heat coming from him as well as light, like the morning sun at the beginning of a tyrannous summer day. Yes, I'm off. Thanks for all your hospitality, but it's no good, you see. I told this little chap, here he indicated the lizard, that he'd have to be quiet if he came, which he insisted on doing. Of course, his stuff won't do here, I realize that, but he won't stop. I shall just have to go home. Would you like me to make him quiet, said the flaming spirit, an angel, as I now understood. Well, of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Ooh, ah, look out, you're burning me, keep away. Don't you want him killed? We didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, well, that's a further question. I'm quite open to considering it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it. Because up here, well, it's so darn embarrassing. May I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that later. There is no time. May I kill it? Please, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really, don't bother. Oh, look, it's gone to sleep now of its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thank you ever so much. May I kill it? Well, honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I'll be able to keep everything in order now. I think the gradual process would be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. Well, don't you think so? Well, I'll think over what you said very carefully. Honestly, I will. In fact, I'd let you do it now, but as a matter of fact, I'm not feeling frightfully well today. It would be most silly to do it now. I'd need to be in good health for the operation, so some other day, perhaps. There is no other day. All days are present now. Get back! You're burning me! How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did. It is not so. Why are you hurting me now? I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Oh, I know, you think I'm a coward. But it isn't that, really it isn't. I say, let me run back by tonight's bus, let me get an opinion from my own doctor, and I'll come again the first moment that I can. This moment contains all moments. Why, why are you torturing me? I mean, you're jeering at me. How can I let you tear me in pieces? If you wanted to help me, why didn't you just kill the darn thing without asking me before I knew about it? Then it would be all over by now if you had. I cannot kill it against your will. It is impossible. Have I your permission? The angel's hands were almost closed on the lizard, but not quite. And the lizard began chattering to the ghost so loud that even I could hear what it was saying. Be careful. 
He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. And it's not natural. How could you live? You'd only be a sort of ghost, not a real man as you are now. He doesn't understand. He's only a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it isn't for us. Yes, yes, I know. There are no real pleasures now, only dreams. But aren't they better than nothing? And I'll be so good, I'll admit. I've sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. You might say quite innocent. Have I your permission? But I know it will kill me. It won't, but supposing it did. You're right. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Then I may. Well, blast you, go on. Can't you get it over with? Do what you like. God help me, God help me. Next moment, the ghost gave a scream of agony such as I never heard on earth. Ah! The burning one closed his crimson grip on the reptile and twisted it while it bit and writhed and then flung it broken-backed on the turf. Ah, oh, that's done for me! Gasped the ghost, reeling backwards. For a moment, I could make out nothing distinctly. And then I saw, between me and the nearest bush, unmistakably solid, but growing every moment solider, the upper arm and the shoulder of a man. Then brighter still and stronger, the legs and hands, the neck, and golden head materialized while I watched, and if my attention had not wavered, I should have seen the actual completing of a man, an immense man, naked, and not much smaller than the angel. But what distracted me was the fact that at the same moment, something seemed to be happening to the lizard. At first I thought the operation had failed, so far from dying, the creature was still struggling and even growing bigger as it struggled. And as it grew, it changed. Its hinder parts grew rounder. The tail, still flickering, became a tail of hair that flickered between huge hind legs. And suddenly, I started back, rubbing my eyes. What stood before me was the greatest stallion I'd ever seen. Silvery white, but with a mane and tail of gold. It was smooth and shining, rippled with swells of flesh and muscle, whinnying and stamping with its hooves. At each stamp, the land shook. The new-made man turned and clapped the new horse's neck. It nosed his bright body. Horse and master breathed each into the other's nostrils. The man turned from it, flung himself at the feet of the burning one and embraced them. When he rose, his face shone with tears, which flowed from him. In joyous haste, the young man leaped upon the horse's back. Turning in his seat, he waved a farewell and then nudged the stallion with his heels. They were off before I knew well what was happening. I came out as quickly as I could from among the bushes to follow them with my eyes, but already they were like a shooting star, far off on the green plain and soon among the hills of the mountains. Then, still like a star, I saw them winding up, scaling what seemed impossible steeps, till near the dim brow of the landscape, 
so high that I must strain my neck to see them. They vanished, bright themselves into the rose brightness of that everlasting morning. Thank you, man. Wow. Why do we take 10 minutes out of our 35 minutes today to go through this with you? Is the sexual appetite a bad thing? Absolutely not. Sex is a glorious gift from God designed for our fulfillment, but it needs to be conquered. It needs to be harnessed. And when the sexual desire is properly mastered, it is like the white stallion that emerged. It's glorious, it's beautiful, it's strong, and it's designed to serve its master, the full-grown man. But when man is not master of this desire, but rather a servant to it, the desire is weak, it's manipulative, it's controlling, and it absolutely will pull you away from God you will walk with a limp. My friend C.S. Lewis wrote this book in 1945. I feel like its message today is far more relevant than it was even then for both men and for women. Philip Yancey says this. He says, sex, like all of God's gifts, must be handled with care in a fallen world. We have lost the innocence of Eden and now every good thing represents risks as well holding within it the potential for abuse. Eating becomes gluttony. Love becomes lust. And along the way, we lose sight of the one who gave us pleasure. The ancients turn good things into idols. We moderns call them addictions. But in either case, what ceases to be servant becomes a tyrant. Guys, the process of becoming more like Christ, it's two-pronged, as I mentioned today. There's a putting off of the old self. There's a warring against the sin that fights for control of our lives with grace-driven effort. We are to go hard after the activity of purging the sin from our life. And although Colossians doesn't spell this out specifically, guys, the Holy Spirit wants to fight with you and for you. But I think C.S. Lewis has it right. The angel said, I cannot kill it against your will. We have to choose this. We have an active part in this. We have to choose to be vanquished of the sin. So we war against the sinful flesh. We put off the old self. The second prong that we were gonna get into is the putting on of the new self. This is Paul compelling us to become who we already are in Christ. Verse 10 in our text today, Paul tells us to put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Lloyd last week, I think he, if he was here, he had those virtual reality glasses and he says, we can look at the world through those glasses or we can look at the world through this set of glasses. You guys, the renewing of the mind, the being remade in the image of our creator, it starts here, it starts here. And Paul tells us in Romans 12, he says, um, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. That's the casting off. He says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the putting on of the new. I wanna share one more story with you and then we'll um, have Brian and the worship team lead us up. When I was at Bible school in Sweden, um, 
one of the things we had to do as a group of students there is the director had us memorize just a whole whack of scripture. One of the verses that I came into contact with was Hebrews 12, one and two. It says this, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin which so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And as I read that verse and digested it, it started to hit me right here. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin which so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Guys, I knew what the sin was in my life that so easily entangled. I felt stuck by a particular sin in my life. And I couldn't count the number of times that I would come to God in prayer and ask forgiveness for the same sin. I felt like I was tripping over the same rock over and over and over and over again. And what happened when that became thematic in my life is I started to avoid the throne room of God. I started to kind of avoid God the way that Adam hid in the garden from God because I felt ashamed that I hadn't figured out how to get this sin out of my life. And I'm like, man, we're talking about the same sin again. God, I'm sorry, but I'm still stuck here. I'm still wrestling with this. I don't know why. Guys, what is your Hebrews 12 sin in your life? What is that sin in your life that so easily entangles? I started to ask myself, what would my spiritual life be like if I could actually get victory here? Right? You might have a dozen sins that you've successfully vanquished, you've successfully overcome, but maybe there's one thing where you feel like someone has still got you by the ankle and it's causing you to walk with the limp. My friends, as we go into this last worship set, would you visualize that sin in your life that so easily entangles? Would you drag it out from the darkness over here and would you put it before God this morning and say, Jesus, would you help me? I don't want this. Would you help me? through your power and through your Holy Spirit to overcome this. That is our task, church.